and as divided as our country is, staying home is as good as giving a vote to the other team. So I think that's the danger. And I, and I think that's what 2016, you know, sparked in them. They realized, yeah, we can take these votes for granted. You no, know, maybe they won't go to the Republican Party, but they don't have to come out at all. I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorette. My guest today is Daniela Gibbs-Leger. She's the Senior Vice President for Communications and Strategy at the Center for American Progress. And she's also the new co-host of the Thinking Cap podcast. And if you haven't listened to that podcast, you should. It's really smart. And I love smart podcasts. Thinking Cap, you know, it's weekly and it features some some top progressive leaders and influencers. You know, I'm actually a little bit jealous of the, of the guests that they have. But the show covers major issues around the intersection of activism, race, and policy, kind of similar to the electorate. You know, and Center for American Progress is one of those organizations that I truly admire. And, you know, because it keeps me centered, right? It's keeping us all centered in this crazy mess that we're in right now. And if you've ever seen Neera Tandon, the president of Center for American Progress, if you've ever seen her in an interview or if you follow her on social media, you'd know that she takes conservatives to task. She takes no prisoners. And all of the women that I've talked to from CAP, they all have that same inner fire. So I'm really lucky to have had the chance to talk to Daniela. You know, we talk about midterms, you know, because of course I talk midterms to anyone who will listen to me these days. We talk about the left versus the far left and progressives and Democrats and, you know, where those divisions lie. And she also gets gives me some really solid advice about what I can do and what we can all do to help win in November. So without further ado, here is Daniela Gibbs-Leger. Daniela Gibbs-Leger, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So, well, first things first, I, I want to congratulate you on your new role as co-host on Thinking Cap. I'm, I'm really excited for you. You know, earlier this year, I had a really great conversation with Michelle Jawando. She's actually the previous co-host for Thinking Cap. And, you know, I know she's moving on to, to better things. Or actually, sorry, not better things. <laughs> she's moving on to other things. Just other things. But yes, good for her. <laughs> I miss her, but good for her. I mean, how do you feel about your debut? Are you nervous? You know, I, I'm, I'm nervous because Michelle has big shoes to fill. Um, but, you know, I, I've done I haven't done a podcast before, but I have done a few radio interviews. So I uh, and I've filled in for a couple of um, shows before. So I'm, I'm feeling pretty good about it. I'm, I'm looking forward to what me and my uh, new co-host Ed Chung will will bring to the table. Yeah, I still get nervous, actually. Every now and again. I'm not nervous now, but, you know, (laughs) but I I do want to ask you um, first, and this may not be a fair question to open with, but just just generally, because I think everybody's thinking about the midterms now. How are you feeling just overall about the midterms? (laughs) So uh, (laughs) since 2016, I have stopped feeling optimistic about almost anything when it comes to politics. Uh, But if I remove that cynical part of myself that Donald Trump has caused me to feel, uh, I am feeling optimistic about the chances of progressives um, and Democrats across the board. Uh, If you look at the energy that's happening out there uh, in the districts and the candidates who are running and the fact that you have almost like every competitive district is being challenged and even some non-competitive districts, that to me just shows that there's a hunger and a desire for change. So I would say I'm cautiously optimistic. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm the same way. There's so much confidence in 2016 mm-hmm. and just, you know, <laughs> licking those wounds and feeling a bit burned and just the cautiousness around having confidence again, I think is really hard for a lot of us. Yeah, no, it definitely is. I, I still I still feel those burns. <laughs> so I want to talk about the women because, you know, of course, there's a record number of women running and a lot of women are winning their primaries. And that that makes me really, really happy. So mm-hmm. I know a lot of the, the high profile women, Alexandra, 
Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and, of course, Stacey Abrams and Sharice Davids and um, Ilhan Omar, right, who would be the first Somali-American in Congress. Mm -hmm. And there was also Johanna Hayes of Connecticut. She would be the first Black Democrat in Congress if she were to win. She also won Teacher of the Year. Yes. So that that's actually a good sign, right? Yeah, that's a great sign. And I, and I want to talk about Johanna's case for a second because I think it is – uh, emblematic of what's happening across the country. You know, here is a woman who was a lifelong Democrat, um, has a, you know, a great story um, of, you know, once being homeless to now, you know, being teacher of the year to running. And she was told, you know, I don't really think you're going to be a viable candidate. And she wasn't told that by a Republican. She was told that by her fellow Democrats. Uh, so I think there are, you know, there are still like pockets of resistance to change to people who fall outside of the the typical pipeline, if you will, for running for office. And, you know, she could have easily been deterred because she was a first time candidate. She hadn't held any other office and she didn't have the backing of the Democratic establishment. But, you know, she believed in herself and she believed in what she wanted to do, and what she wanted to accomplish for her district and she persevered. And, you know, I think there's a great lesson in that for women, but especially women of color, uh, that, you know, you're going to get told no a lot and you shouldn't listen to that. You should listen to what's inside of you and to what your kitchen cabinet people are telling you um, and and run for something and, and try and, and don't be discouraged because, you know, the establishment might tell you, eh, no, I don't I don't think you really have a shot here. All right. You know, I think that's really, really important. And this isn't the first time I've heard this in relation to a woman and also coming from from you know her own party, because it's a hard thing to balance this place that we're in, you know, wanting to really win and trying to choose the most viable candidate that we can find and also supporting women because women are running in record numbers and they need the support. Right. So I kind of understand. I guess I don't understand and I don't necessarily support that hesitance, but I understand where it would come from. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I I understand it. But, you know, you have to this is why where you are matters. And I think in certain districts, you run candidates that can run in the district. So we're a very diverse and varied country. And, you know, somebody like a Connor Lamb in Pennsylvania, you know, he is probably definitely more on the conservative side for a Democrat. But it works in that district. And I think, you know, if you look at Joanna's district, I'm pretty sure a Democrat has held that for a while. Uh, so it, it didn't really necessarily make sense that people thought that she couldn't win. Uh, so I think there there is a, a balancing act. And, you know, in some districts, it makes sense that you're going to possibly have a more conservative candidate. You know, Doug Jones running for Senate in Alabama. Um, he was more progressive than I thought <laughs> a Democrat <laughs> could be. And he won. But, you know, people were saying, well, he's not progressive enough. And I'm like, but it's Alabama. So what exactly do you want? You want somebody to win who has a D next to their name, correct? So you need to fit the area that you're running for. But that can't be an excuse to shut out people everywhere. You know, you don't hear, regardless of, of the climate in a person's district, you don't hear that discouragement for male candidates. They seem to be perfect for whatever <laughs> district they're, they're running in, right? There is no lack of confidence for male candidates running. Well, unless, you know, you're a male candidate of color. Uh, so let's just be clear about what we're really talking about. For, for white males... Um, the door is usually wide open for them to generally do what they want when it comes to running uh, for office. They get that support. They don't get told no. The, the, the barriers that candidates of color have to jump over just aren't there um, for, for candidates who are not of color. Yeah. You know, and Johanna's story reminds me a bit of Stacey Abrams in that, you know, they have these 
real stories in their backgrounds, right? They, you know, have the narrative that they're, they're real people, you know, Stacey Abrams with her debt, you know, and she's very open about that. And, you know, I think recently she was kind of attacked or criticized for that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I heard that, I, you know, I have, you know, student loans and I had personal debt in my past. And I think of that as an asset, right? And I, it's just kind of unfathomable to me how someone could see that as not being an asset. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> an asset, I mean, it's, it's not an asset in the classic financial terms. Right. I know what you mean, but like, it's it's real, but it is an asset in in terms of like you know your narrative and telling your story and connecting with constituents. Yeah, I mean most people who go to college graduate with debt, and a lot of people leave with a lot of debt that takes them decades to pay off. I mean the Obamas just finished paying off their college loans not too long before they came into office, if I'm not mistaken. So it is something that millions and millions of Americans can relate to. And it's not like she went into debt because she wanted to get season tickets to the Nationals or the Capitals, like one Brett Kavanaugh, who was up for the Supreme Court of the United States. So, you know, I I think that that argument was much ado about nothing. And, you know, just another way for Republicans to try to paint Stacey Abrams as somehow not like everybody else. She's different. She's not really one of us. Um, And, you know, I think that argument was obviously just complete BS. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, when I when I look through the field of women or just people generally who've won their primaries, the Democrats who've won their primaries, there seems to be this kind of thing that comes up often. Right. And that's the division between, you know, what people are calling the progressive or the far left and the establishment left. You know, that still confuses me. Sometimes I don't know who falls where. Or, you know, and I and I worry about that because I feel that some of those same divisions were problematic in 2016. And I was wondering, you know, what are your thoughts on that? So I I go back and forth between thinking it's a tiny little problem and not a problem at all. (laughs) I I think that in the media, there is a desire to see um, Democrat on Democrat violence, if you will. Uh, so they like this division um, that they think exists. And, and that's not to say that it doesn't, that there aren't, you know, we are a, a broad tent party. So are definitely people who are further to the left of like where I am, who, you know, are running these purity tests. Like if you don't you know check all of these boxes of ours, you're not a Democrat and you're not a liberal, which I think is kind of ridiculous. Um, and there are some Democrats who I find to be, you know, a little bit too on the conservative side for my taste. But I think that divide is not as pronounced as they make it seem. And I I think that at the end of the day, again, this goes back to running candidates who can win in their districts. And, you know, I think Alexandria, you know, from Joe Crowley's district is a prime example. You know, she's pretty liberal. I think she's great. Could she have won in Connor Lamb's district? No. Um, she will win in her district, obviously, uh, there. And I think she's a great candidate. And I think she, her energy will be great in Congress and in keeping, you know, helping keep Democrats together and focus on what's important. But if Democrats want to take back the House, they have to win seats everywhere. And that means, again, that they have to find candidates who can win in their districts. And so I, I think it doesn't do progressives or Democrats any good to to buy into this narrative that there is like this huge division. I, I think 2016 is a different case because I think when you're focused on two people, you know, Hillary Clinton versus Bernie Sanders, then that's like a different dynamic. But when you're talking about dozens, 
you know, of candidates across the country, it's it's harder to make it that sort of binary choice, uh, if that makes sense. So, you know, I get asked about this when I do interviews and, and my general response is I know that this is something that, that you guys, meaning the media, love to talk about. But I think at the end of the day, all Democrats are united on making sure that whoever Paul Ryan's replacement is, is not Speaker of the House. I think one of the things that worries me about the way that we talk about the women who are running, and I feel like sometimes only women see the value in having more women represented in government, right? Mm -hmm. And I feel like as Democrats, we're not really doing a good job in conveying that representation is really important in relation to gender and working on women's issues. Is that something that that we should work on as Democrats? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think and you see you see people like Tom Perez, who's the chair of the DNC and other leaders verbalizing the need to make sure that women and people of color, women of color especially, you know, have a seat at the table, that the party's relationship to them can't just be transactional, that it has to be, you know, we're investing in you, we're helping you, you know, you know, win elected office. And then when you're here that you're, you know, that you're listened to and that you are helping to push the caucus along, to push the agenda along, to be more inclusive and more progressive. But just like how, you know, the fight for civil rights, while obviously it's something that affects, you know, communities of color at the foremost, that wasn't pushed over the line just by communities of color. Like you're not going to get anywhere um, unless everybody is sort of fighting for that goal. So the onus can't be on women alone just to make sure that our issues are at the foremost of the agenda or that, you know, people are fighting to make sure that Roe is protected. It can't just be the women senators who are standing up and saying that Brett Kavanaugh shouldn't be appointed to the Supreme Court. The men in office, they also, too, have to stand up and be champion for women. So, you know, I think that message is getting out there. Um, We'll see. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, it's one of those things where it's like you can say all this, but it's like, what do you do? What are your actions? Are you putting your your efforts and your money and your resources behind these women? And it, it seems like that is what is starting to happen. Yeah, it's starting. But I mean, the thing is, is that, you know, studies have shown that, you know, women in government tend to focus on women's issues like reproductive justice, right, more so than male candidates. Mm-hmm. I guess when that's true, it's hard to convey the value of having more women in government to male constituents, just to you know put it plainly. Right. I think women see the value in having other women in government. But, you know, the, the other half of the electorate doesn't necessarily <laughs> see that or feel that. And I think it's really important to somehow come up with a message that will convey that importance to to them. Yeah. Sometimes it's frustrating because, you know, as progressives, it's like, well, why wouldn't it be better to have a more representative democracy? Like it shouldn't have to spell it out or it shouldn't have to be, you know, so personal to you that you can't see the benefit uh, in having somebody who isn't like you be in Congress. But, you know, like I said, I, I'm in this area, I'm a little bit I'm a little bit more optimistic than um, maybe in other areas that I, I do think with all these women who are running and they're not just obviously getting support from women, they're getting support from men, too. Right. So uh, I, I think that, like I said, I think that we could be we could be seeing a nice change here. You know, speaking of Tom Perez, I'm not sure if you if you saw this, but he recently issued an apology to black women and women of color, mm-hmm. you know, I guess on behalf of the DNC. And I think it may have been at a fundraiser in Georgia, actually. And he was apologizing for having overlooked issues that are important to to us, mm-hmm. like the infant mortality rate or, you know, the pay gap. You know, that was a good move. 
given that Black women are probably the most committed voting bloc for the party. You know, but when I heard that apology, you know, which was, you know, it was a little late. It was on the on the late side. Um, you know, I, I started to wonder whether there is a risk of the Democratic Party losing that support, the support of women of color and the support of black of black women. Yes, <laughs> there is a risk. <laughs> it is real. And I think he heard it loud and clear. Uh, when several um, prominent African-American women you know, sort of wrote an open letter to them saying, you know, what are you doing? Like, where's the support for our candidates? Where is the support for, you know, making sure you're putting money behind um, GOTV in African-American communities, but not just in, you know, October or September, but a, a sustained, continued not just outreach, but a dialogue. Uh, again, moving from that transactional, we need to get your vote, we need you to get your friends to vote kind of thing to, uh, okay, yeah, we do need your vote, but we need your ideas. We want you at the table. You know, what can we be doing and what are the issues that are most important to you and what can we be doing to make sure we actually get those issues uh, in front of, you know, state houses and in front of Congress and, and all of that. So I, I think he heard that loud and clear and that's why, he gave that apology in Atlanta. You know, there's like a reason why you did it in Atlanta. I mean, Atlanta is such a mecca uh, for black politics. And, you know, there's a large base of support there from the African-American community to the Democratic Party. So I think it was symbolic and right that he did that there and that he seems to be, again, putting some oomph behind those words because something I rant about on Twitter all the time is that, you know, all these politicians who say bad things about Donald Trump or admonish him on Twitter, but then don't do anything. It doesn't mean anything. It's like you have to put some actions behind your words. So, uh, you know, I, I think that he got that Tom Perez got that message. Yeah. You know, but I, I have to say that I'm a bit cynical about it because, you know, honestly, you know, where where would we go? <laughs> I mean, you know, we're not going to become <laughs> we'd stay the, home, right? Right. No, but we'd, but we'd stay home, which honestly is now, like, and, and as divided as our country is, staying home is as good as giving a vote to the other team. So I yeah. think that's the danger. And I, and I think that's what 2016, you know, sparked in them. They realized, yeah, we can take these votes for granted. You no, know, maybe they won't go to the Republican Party, but they don't have to come out at all. Um, if they're not moved by our candidates, if their candidates aren't speaking to them, if we're not talking to them constantly. So that's that's a real danger. It, it may not be defecting to the Republican Party, especially not now. It's a Republican Party of Trump. Uh, but it's that uh, people stop engaging and they stop trying to get other people engaged. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about this and thinking a lot about turnout because people are talking about turnout, you know, being so close to the midterms. And I just feel as if, you know, I've been doing lots of reading about voter suppression and the history of voter suppression lately. I've been kind of heads down <laughs> thinking about that a lot. And I think that what's missing in that conversation is voter suppression, right? And talking about all of the efforts that have been made. And, you know, people like to indict constituents for not coming out to vote during midterms. And I think for 2016, I think the number was for African-Americans, it was down, you know, somewhat around seven or eight percent. Right. Turnout mm -hmm. was down, mm -hmm. you know, but people talk about that outside of the context of what happened to keep those voters at home. Right. And right. it isn't necessarily always apathy. Right. Exactly. And you when people talk about Wisconsin and, you know, people were doing sort of deep dives into what happened in Wisconsin. And, you know, I'm sitting here reading the stuff like right after the election, like you 
did not mention the voter ID laws and the voter suppression stuff once. Like, how on earth can you do an honest assessment of what happened and not talk about everything that Scott Walker did to keep people of color from voting? And and these tactics, you know, they have like a demonstrable proven effect of suppressing the vote. So you're 100 percent right. Like you can't you can't talk about the the downturn in, in the African-American vote in 2016 without also talking about all the tactics that Republicans did in many states and are still doing and have done since then and ratcheted up to try and keep people away from the polls. And I think, you know, sometimes it's hard for for people who are, I don't know, more affluent or, or, or whatever to understand what it means when a governor says, well, we're going to take away same-day voting registration. We're going to take away early voting. We're going to take away voting on Sundays, which was a huge draw for African-Americans, especially with souls to the polls. We're going to make sure that you have to have an ID, but we're going to close all the DMVs that are in all the black neighborhoods, you know, or we're going to make it so that you can only come out on one certain day to get your ID. All of this stuff has an effect. And if you're somebody who relies on public transportation, you don't have your own car, you work, uh, you know, Irregular hours. Like, it's just not that easy to take several hours out of your day to go get an ID to vote. And, and sometimes I think that people who, who have their ID, people who are wealthier, who have regular nine to five jobs, they don't understand what these they seem little to them. But what these big changes, what it can do to somebody who doesn't have the same advantages as they do. And so that's why I, I feel like it's so important for for groups like us and other groups who really focus on voter turnout and increasing voter participation to tell the stories of people and tell the stories of the 98-year-old woman who couldn't get her ID for various amounts of reasons, or to tell the story of my my late grandmother who didn't have an ID, who never had a driver's license. She couldn't get a photo ID because she was too old to go get one. And, you know, it was going to be a problem for her to vote. But because we were here, we could help her with that. But not everybody has family around. So, you know, I, I, I think the, the untold story of the voter suppression tactics and the fact that there hasn't been enough reckoning or backlash or consequences for this having happened is why it's kind of continuing unfettered. And I, I really worry about it in the context of November, but also in 2020. Yeah. You know, and another thing that happens is it, it also sends the message that, you know, this process, this democracy, voting isn't for us. It isn't for people like us. It's only for people who have jobs that, that will allow them to leave in the middle of the day. Mm-hmm. If you work in a restaurant and you can't, you know, get off of your shift, this process is not meant for you. Right. And so when you take away things like early voting or you don't have vote by mail options or, you know, no excuse absentee balloting, it is hard for those people. You know, like in 2016, there are people who are waiting in line for hours to vote. Like, who has time to do that? Like, you have a job. Like, you can't just take off hours uh, to go stand in line to vote. I mean, it is absolutely ridiculous that, you know, we should be doing everything in our power to make it easy, easy to register. We should have automatic voter registration in every single state. We should make it easy for people to vote. We should, you know, if we don't want to change it to a weekend day um, or we don't want to make that first Tuesday in every November a holiday, then we should make it so that people can vote early with no issues. And and I don't understand how it's one party, it's the Republican Party gets away with being, I think, extremely unpatriotic by not wanting every person in this country to vote. I, I, it, it boggles my mind. Yeah. 
You know, I personally think that, you know, once we do take back the House and the Senate and the executive branch, that this should be a primary focus, you know, for the first several years. Absolutely. Just, you know, getting back the full protection of the VRA, the Voting Rights Act, you know, um, from Shelby County versus Holder, you know, that should be the primary focus because everything else will follow that, right? If you have, yeah. you know, full voting rights for everyone, and then people can vote for better health care. They can vote for, you know, everything else that we need. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. And, you know, there are some great candidates running uh, for governor across the country. And, you know, if I'm a Democratic governor. One of the first things I'm going to do when I win is I'm going to figure out how I can put automatic voter registration in place. Yeah. You know, also about the voter ID. I don't know if you've heard of the org Spread the Vote run by the brilliant mm-hmm. Kat Calvin. And that is one organization. I think that they may be the only one that, that does this. They actually go into these communities and they help people get their ID so that they can, you know, not only vote, but they can have jobs. And I really love the work that they do. Yeah. And, and groups like that who are on the ground doing that kind of work, you know, they need support. It's not it's not easy work. So I want to talk about the role of feminism in the upcoming elections generally, right? You know, there's been, I spend a lot of time on social media, probably too much time. <laughs> probably not as much as and, I do. <laughs> especially on Twitter. Um, it's a wonder I get anything done. But, you know, there's been, I've been seeing these these kind of back and forth about the division between white feminism and, and black feminism, mm-hmm. right? And I worry about just like, you know, the fight between, you know, the left and the far left, even though that that's probably a media construct, you know, possibly in most cases. Right. I feel like that that could be a problem as well. Yeah. And and I think that that divide actually is less a media construct and more like real. (laughs) I think it I think it is a problem. Um, I mean, I think it is I think it's getting better. and And I honestly think that among sort of the younger generation that there is a more of a recognition that the feminist movement has been traditionally can be exclusionary for women of color and or or and not necessarily out of you know you know bad intentions but just it's just the way it is or leaving women to feel like their their voices they can't bring their authentic voices to uh, the table when it comes to a conversation about feminism and you know I, I think it is I think it is getting better but I, I definitely do think that that is a divide and when you when you look at stuff like when they say you know women you know didn't vote for Trump but actually 53% of white women did vote for Trump uh you know that certainly didn't help um you know heal any of those uh any of those divisions but you know I I think with this like I said this younger crop of women and and honestly I do feel like you know the youth generally speaking will save us from ourselves but with this younger group of women that there isn't a recognition that the, there needs to be more intersectionality when it comes to feminism and um, people of color and women of color you know I was also I was at an event recently where uh, this phenomenal pastor Reverend Juanita Weems was speaking about, when it comes to black women, how often, because race plays such an important role in everything that we do, that, you know, sexism takes a takes second place. And that sometimes is not even a, a thought, like, because you're, you're dealing with so much when it comes to race that you also forget that on top of that, there's this whole other realm of issues that you're also dealing with as a woman, but as a woman of color. So there's also some work to be done 
you know, on on that side as well as sort of recognizing that those two things go hand in hand. And, you know, it's not necessarily a battle between, you know, which one's more important. They're both important. And I think that as as white women become more inclusionary in their feminism and understanding of that perspective, that I think that black women will also begin to bring that aspect of, yes, I am, you know, I'm dealing with racism all the time, but Yes, I'm also dealing with sexism and dealing with a patriarchal world and bringing that part of themselves to the conversation, too. Yeah. Along the same lines, I think one of the things about the Democratic Party that that I think about a lot is that we don't give our women, just generally all women, enough room to 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 be flawed. Right. To to make mistakes. Right. Right. Or, you know, even some things that aren't mistakes, you know, they're so easily seen as mistakes. Yeah. And, you know, you have, for instance, I was just thinking about, you know, Maxine Waters and those false claims that she called for violence, which, you know, wasn't true. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And Kirsten Gillibrand and, you know, Nancy Pelosi. And I feel like there's just so much there's there's such a lack of room for them to, you know, correct course or to make a mistake. And sometimes, honestly, I, I'm not really sure why I'm supposed to dislike <laughs> some of these women. But I just think that, yeah, that's an issue in the Democratic Party, that, that we aren't very forgiving of the women and we should be more supportive. Yeah. You know, I think that's right. Like women, they do. They have to be they have to be perfect. And, you know, you see these some of these um, male members of Congress and, you know, from simple things like making a gaffe here and there to like more serious issues, there seems to be a level of forgiveness and understanding uh, that just isn't there for, for everybody else. And I look at some of the the criticism of Alexandria or or I always mess up her last name. Ocasio-Cortez, I think. <laughs> uh, from, from New York and, and some of the criticisms of her answers around certain policy things. And, you know, they just immediately go to, she's not ready. She was a waitress. She didn't go to Harvard. She's from the Bronx. I'm like, Joe Crowley was from the Bronx. I'm like, what? And I was like, Do you, have you heard some of these other members of Congress, some of these men who sound like they can barely put two words together in a coherent sentence? And, and you're going to attack her because she, like, may have misspoke about some, like, really in-the-weeds policy thing that you yourself probably couldn't speak anything about. Like, it is infuriating. Uh, The the levels and the hoops that women, especially women of color, have to jump through just to be seen as being on the same level as their male colleagues. And you're seeing it in force now from, from the way they treat Alexandria to the way they treat Maxine to... The the calls for Nancy Pelosi to step down. Do, I don't hear anybody talking about Jim Jordan, who's he said he's running for speaker, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And no one's calling on other Republicans running for Congress saying, are you going to support this guy who allegedly knew about pedophilia happening at his school and did nothing? Like, where is the equal outrage? I'm getting really vexed, as my mom would say. <laughs> so... Yeah, it's a problem. And I, <laughs> I I am hopeful that maybe when there's a postmortem of this election and we look back and somebody does a deep dive, maybe like the Women's Media Center, about how women were treated and talked about and talked to in this campaign, that there will be some sort of reckoning. Yeah. You know, I feel like we're just not very good at sussing out legitimate criticisms for, you know, policy failures. And in between that and misogyny, what is coming from misogyny and internalized misogyny and what's a legitimate criticism? Right. We, we right. haven't been able to parse those things out very well. Yeah, I think that's right. Like you can, you know, you can criticize Stacey Abrams, I'm sure, for a whole host of things and policy things that you don't agree with. But, you know, the attacks on her because she has debt 
and some of the other foolish things like that's that's not about that's not about a policy difference. So what do you think is the best use of my time and, you know, our time before we head to midterms? You know, um, I think for it's, it's different things for different people, uh, for the people who can, who are fortunate to have resources, I would say give. Give early, give soon, so that candidates actually have time to spend that money. You know, giving uh, the week before the election, it can help for GOTV, but I think they would appreciate that money now. And you know, five, ten dollars, like every little bit helps. Um, you know, I have myself have pledged to in my personal time, obviously, uh, to to give you know just little bits of amount to people that I support. You know, if I post something on Facebook about, oh, I love this candidate's ad, I'm going to give a little money because me saying I like this ad is enough. I need to do something. If you have time to go and volunteer, do that. If you can phone bank for people, you can now phone bank from your pajamas, on your couch, maybe with a glass of rosé. Like, technology is amazing. And so, you know, find a candidate to support and, and try and help out that way. But mostly, like, Read and, and, and know what's going on and talk to your, your friends and your colleagues and the people in your lives who, you know, maybe they're, they don't follow politics as much as you do, but you know that they care about their families and their community. And, you know, maybe they haven't voted before or maybe they're, they have voted and they feel really disgusted by our current politics. Who can blame them? And they feel like their vote doesn't matter. Explain to them that it does matter, you know. Tell them about the district in Virginia that was won by one vote that actually was tied and had to be won by somebody picking a name out of a canister. Like every vote is going to count and and we need every eligible voter to turn out. And even if you think your, your vote won't count because you're in a majority whatever district, it does because people will be looking at the returns and seeing, you know, oh, X amount of Democrats showed up in this really red district. And they're going to make um, interpretations of that data and they're going to try and say something about what that means for 2020. So I would say the most important thing, obviously, is actually getting out and casting that vote. So short of that or in addition to that, I should say, make sure that you're talking to all the eligible voters in your lives, making sure they're registered. If they don't know where to vote, there are easy ways to figure that out. And if you can, donate your time and your money to candidates that you support. That's excellent advice. (laughs) Well, Daniela, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And I am really looking forward to your podcast debut. Ah, Well, thank you very much. And thanks for having me on. I I look forward to joining the ranks of uh, podcast hosts. Uh, And be sure to follow me on Twitter at thegiver123. I am funny. (laughs) I am. (laughs) Thanks a lot. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider becoming a supporter of the electorate. Visit us at electorate.com and click on the donation link at the top of the page. The electorate is now available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Stitcher. Please consider subscribing using your favorite podcast platform. Also, please like us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash electorate. And until next time, keep up the good fight. <laughs>